Opera House if you don't want to miss our insights into what is must see and what is must skip. So my co-co-host Oliver Camacho, you can trust me. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Hello, everybody. George Cedarquist here. Thanks so much for joining us from Opera Box Score. We have got such a great show for you tonight. I'm super excited that you are here with us. I'm also excited that Oliver Camacho is here. Oliver, what's up? I'm just so excited that you're excited. That's like, um, it's infectious. It's like Ebola in here. And and who would you be over there? I'm your worst nightmare. Oh, yeah. What's your name? My name is... Giovanna. Well, Giovanna, you are going to uh, set up this first segment for us. Let's get right to it. Yes. George, this is the first time that you put me first on a running order, and it makes me really, 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 really happy. So, first uh, and foremost, Lyric has a really, really big season coming up um, for 2016-2017, and it opens with Das Rheingold, which is an, a Wagner, and it's the first of the Ring Cycle operas. Um, Eric Owens, beloved Eric Owens, will be playing... Wotan, ruler of the gods, and Fricka, his wife, is sung by Tanya Ariane Baumgartner. I'm probably mispronouncing something here, but that's all right. The second opera coming up. Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, the ahead, director, the, um, is it David Poutney? Poutney, David Poutney. Okay. Um, do you know Poutney? Yeah, David Poutney uh, is a British director. Um, he ran or runs the Brigens Festival, okay. 
which is, uh, the Bregenz Festival is on this lake that borders Germany and Switzerland, and it's famous for its floating stage, which is exactly what it sounds like, which is an opera stage floating in the middle of this lake. I mean, it, it, the I'm theater... I'm embarrassed when there's a floater. It, oh, God. The theater seats like 3,000 people, and uh, he's, a, he's just a fantastic director. I cannot wait to see what he's going to well, do he, with Das Rangel. gave a little tease uh, a year ago, 2014, about what he was going to do, and it seems like this production is going to be the opposite of the Mets notorious the machine production he's looking for something a little more natural and like you know uh, theatery and I remember hearing something about like how he wants to make sure like when you see like aerial work that you also see like the ropes and you see the people pulling the ropes and stuff like that so something a little bit more you know uh like a hot, what do you call it? Like home, home sewn, you know, like homemade. It's homemade, the ring, you know. Well, I would hope for God's sake that he would actually focus on, oh, I don't know, character and relationship <laughs> as opposed to what Robert Lepage, the Canadian director, did at the, the Metropolitan mm. Opera production that, that Oliver mentioned, which was like all smoke and mirrors and computer graphics and had absolutely no heart and no soul. And everybody complained about it the whole time because it felt like just a, a, a bag of tricks with, with no payoff. That is not the way you want to start your ring cycle. What's after that? Lucia di Lammermoor, which is a Donizetti opera, and Albina Shaggy Muratova will be Lucia. You have to say that faster. Shaggy Muratova. Yeah. Shaggy Muratova. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm just so tired of productions of Lucia de, de la Marmore. Yeah, I, uh, just do it like yeah, I don't know why you would program this piece. This seems like a total sleeper. And have you and ever it, seen it? Yeah, I've, I've AD'd this show. I've twice. Uh, this is not uh, one of my favorite operas, everybody. Yeah, well, you and obviously a lot of other mm-hmm. patrons, because everybody wants to. I'm, I am killing it. opera with my love of the classics. So. <laughs> Uh, now, after Lucia, though, this is a biggie. The next Royale, one. which is Berlioz. And Christine Gurka is Cassandra. And Sophie Koch is Didon. And Brandon Jovanovic is Ine. And, and the director. You know, Ber- Berlioz is, this is a long-ass opera. Ooh, a long, excuse me. This is a long <laughs> opera. It's a big It's a big piece. And, uh, yeah, I've, I always uh, am concerned when... You know, an opera house like this takes on a piece like because like you go you risk you know overtime with each uh, production you know with rehearsals and whatnot, and uh, there are union rules and whatnot, and it can be very expensive. And if it's not a hit, uh, it can you know it can definitely. Uh, cause financial strain. Well, I think it is going to be a hit. Tim Albury is directing, who's also English. Um, he's done a lot of theater. He's done a lot of musical theater. Uh, the show is in good hands. I mean, it is. It's an enormous piece. San Francisco Opera did it um, last season. You just like him because he's English and he went to San Francisco Opera. Um, he does have many things going for him, but um, <laughs> if you look at his headshot on the Lyric Opera mm. of Chicago website, he... He looks very. No director has a decent headshot out no, there. It's, it's nice shadows too. Mine. Yeah. Those are beautiful shadows on your face, Tim. <laughs> uh, pity we can't see your eyes. Okay. So after after Le Troyen. and Ferruccio Forlanetto is Don Quixote, and Clementine Margen is Dulcine. Just so you know, this Don Quixote uh, is an opera they trot out like every other year at San Diego. It seems to be Ferruccio Furlanetto's calling card. And he's, uh, you know, in the golden years of his career. So he's very well liked in Chicago. uh, And we have not yet been treated to his Don Quixote. But uh, it's not a well-known opera. It's definitely not in the the standard canon. But it seems to be an opera that gets a lot of... uh, 
uh, a lot of mileage just because of Ferruccio Forlanetto. Yeah, well, I really feel sorry for um, Matthew Ozawa, who is directing the production. He was an assistant director at Lyric Opera for a number of years, and he's now kind of graduated to the directing level. He's got a great career ahead of him. Uh, he's directing the production of Nabucco, which is at Lyric Opera currently. But man, he's really like drawn the short straw on this. Just looking at the production photos alone, it's not his production. It's a rehash of an old production. Looking at these photos, you can see the cracks in the set where they have failed to sort of repair. You could see the duct tape on the costumes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know what he's what he's going to do with this. This feels like a li- real clunker to me and a really missed opportunity. Wow, you're like really positive about some of these things. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're only halfway through the season here, so let's push on. The Magic Flute is next. Mozart, if you didn't know that, you should really rethink your knowledge. Um, Andrew Staples and Matthew Polanzani sing Tamino, and Christian Karg sings Pamina. Matthew Polanzani is amazing right now. He's only singing, I think, the last few. They're like bringing it at the end of the season. Like some of those, like where they split, they split the performances. Um, and I will definitely want to hear Polanzani as Tamino. Uh, crush on him? No, actually, no. We are, are sort of acquaintances. He used to work at the Verdi Puccini Opera Cafe oh. back in the day when uh, he was living in Evanston. So you're just not admitting that you have a crush on him? I love his. I love his singing. I'm crazy about his singing. And I th- well, we'll talk about him later on in the show, but. Um, the production is, I think, a new production by Neil Armfield and Dale Ferguson. Uh, and I'm sort of dismayed that they're not bringing in that uh, Deutsche Komische Opera oh, I know. production. But it's going to be in Minnesota. So for those of you living in Minnesota, tell us all about it and get me a, a ticket. And I'll join you there and I'll buy you a cafe latte or something. Well, I feel a road trip coming on, Oliver, because yeah. just looking at the graphics here from the Lyric Opera website, I thought that was the production that had been at the Komische Oper in Berlin that was coming to Chicago. And how excited was I to be able to see that? It's got amazing productions, projections Unfortunately, this is not it. This is Neil Armfield, who directed a great Midsummer Night's Dream a couple seasons ago at Lyric Opera of Chicago. He has a black and white headshot, which has also went out of fashion about 15 years ago. Uh, but um, I'm just so bored with the magic flute. I really am. I just have zero interest in seeing it at all. So I'm kind I, of on the same page as you. I'm, j- I'm going to. So I'm, the money that I would have spent on this, I'm just going to spend to go to Minnesota, I think, and just see that other one. So. Next is Norma Bellini, and Sandra Radvanovsky is Norma, and Elizabeth Deschamps will be Adeljiza, or Adeljiza, or Adeljiza. Adeljiza. Yeah, Sandra Radvanovsky is uh, making a career now of singing these insane bel canto heroines, and she's currently doing the three Donizetti queens at the Met, and she's already sung Norma a few times, um, and she's bringing it to Chicago. I think the last time we had Norma here was with June Anderson back in the 90s, so... And this set looks huge. Yeah, well, this is the one that I'm really, really excited about before everybody starts accusing me of being such a... Sourpuss, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, know, really, No George. Magic Flute, no Lucia. I mean, these are operas that really bring in the audience. And, and this so. is why I'm excited, is that it's uh, Norma was one of the first operas that I ever got to know, so there's the piece, but there's also Kevin Newbery who's directing it. Kevin Newbery is a good friend of mine, talented director, is directing Bel Canto at Lyric Opera of Chicago right now. Nope, um it just finished. Okay, well, he was, yeah. he he directed it for the History yeah, Bugs. Yeah. Um, who, uh, Kevin's? Yeah. Yeah. Better than Ricardo Fritz says. Yeah. 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 It is good. He's going a bit gray. And but welcome he, to Opera Box Girl. We criticize people's headshots. But Kevin is so smart, and he has a great way of taking 
uh, you know, standard repertoire operas, and frankly, designing them with his team and and putting them in a, in a, a historical setting that's not totally bizarre, that's not totally crazy, that's actually very sort of representative of the composer's intentions, and yet finding a way to make it so immediate and so personal that you cannot fail to be moved by his work. I really hmm, can't. Maybe wait you should for this get one. him conducting or directing uh, Lucia Lamour for you or Magic Flute for you. I wonder if we could swap them around. We can have wood for those guys. So. Musical conductors. I mean, musical directors. Uh, Carmen is Bizet, and Carmen is Ekaterina Rubanova and Anita Rachevilshvili. Yeah. That sounds like a yeah. like a Georgian name, Ra- right? She's like Georgian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was the Carmen at the Met broadcast uh, earlier this year, or I guess in 2015, uh, last season. And her voice is beautiful. She sings so bel canto. And uh, I'm excited to hear her in the hall. I've never heard her live. But uh, I was just surprised at how beautifully she sang Carmen. And uh, when you hear her interviews and her backstage antics, like you see, she seems like she's going to be the type of singer that like tears up the stage. But she's actually a very kind of simple actress uh, with a beautiful voice. And um, yeah. This is what I'm excited about. I'm a sucker for Carmen. Your, your Norma George is my Carmen. Oh, good. I, that, that's an and exciting And I think, statement. isn't Brandon, jo- oh, Joseph Kalea is singing so the is, first run. So is Bra- yeah, Brandon. Yeah, Brandon is, is doing the second. Eskimio is Christian Von Horn and Michaela is Eleonora Burato. And what's the last show, Giovanna? Eugene Onegin, which is Tchaikovsky. And uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce Eugene's name. It's Ma- Marius Kvitschen. Yeah. Yeah. And Anna Maria Martinez is Tatiana. Which is um, that's only seven shows, though. One, well, two, three, they also four, have five, My Fair Lady seven. as their Oh, no, no, there's musical. eight. I'm sorry, that's eight. That's it. And then Charlie Parker's Yardbird is their Unlimited, which I'm very excited which about. Which they're Lawrence doing Brown at the Harris Theater, which is, I think, the first time that they're l- launching an opera not to be performed. Yeah, it's a smart move at, on their part. At Lyric Opera House. Why do you think it's a smart move? Well, I mean, I think it's it's going to shrink the size of the house. I mean, the Harris is like half the size of uh, the Civic Opera House. And it's a, it's a musical theater piece, so like we really need to hear the dialogue, and we really want to hear it With spoken Lawrence well. Lawrence Brownlee, Angela Brown, and Will Liverman. Liverman. Yeah. Yeah, so is good. it, I don't, I'm not, I don't know this piece, but is it, is it musical it's theater, really or cool. is it... My Fair is Lady? No, no, no. no, no, no. Yardbird. Yardbird. Oh, sorry. Yes. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, that, so that's the one being done in the Harris. I was like, oh, they're doing My Fair Lady at the Harris. Uh, yeah, this is not a musical. This is an opera. Okay. Uh, but it seems to me that if you're doing a piece about a jazz musician, you want to have that more sort of cool, intimate feel, which is exactly what the Harris Theater provides. Okay. Javana, really appreciate the rundown of the season. And uh, I, I sense some dates coming on in the future for us. Eugene Onegin so. is the Robert Carson production. And it's the production that they ditched at the Met. Uh, but I love this production because I don't think the new Met production is all that great. It's too dark and it's too realistic. And the Robert Carson is much more. It is. It's very beautifully impressionistic done. And like, I, it's so epic feeling. And. I love the leaves and I love the scene changes. You're going to love the transitions, George. (laughs) I cannot wait. The two-minute drill is coming up next. This just in, the two-minute drill.
It's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. Ryan Taylor, the general director of the Arizona Opera Company, is leaving to become the head of Minnesota Opera effective May 1st. He helped reinvent the Arizona nonprofit financially and artistically, having inherited a $3 million deficit in 2013. Taylor returns to Minnesota, having participated in the company's resident artist program in the 2000-2001 season. Now he just needs to remember which storage unit he packed his snowshoes in. Composer-conductor Matthew O'Quinn will take on the newly created role of artist-in-residence at the Los Angeles Opera. It's the first appointment of its kind for the company. L.A. Opera said that the three-year post created specifically for O'Quinn calls for him to conduct some L.A. Opera performances and write a full-scale opera for its main stage. O'Quinn is 25 years old and is currently working on his first hipster beard. At the La Scala Opera House in Milan, the ovations were so loud and long at the end of the second act of Verdi's Rigoletto that the two singers, Leonucci and Nadina Serra, repeated the final cabaletta in front of the curtain. This was the first Verdi encore sung at La Scala since 1988, when Ricardo Muti repeated the famous chorus Va Pensiero from Verdi's Nabucco. The prohibition on repeats in Verdi's work was instituted by conductor Arturo Toscanini back in the mists of time. More news from Milan, where Graham Vick has been removed from directing a May production of Puccini's La Fanciulla del West, reportedly over a disagreement with the music director Ricardo Chailly. Chailly, in the past, has made it clear that he will not tolerate directorial liberties with established repertoire. Allegedly, Vick's intention was to have a gay men's bar in the opera's scenic design. Insert Vick joke here. And that's the two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score. I'm one out of United every six Way Americans, how we contribute. and I'm because we know with our time and money are this going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get in the clinic, in this I'd country say we're doing the right every thing with our retirement person. too. We're Please. Tom and Cindy Thornton. Visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank. We don't just bank. wear the shirt. We every live dollar it. you donate Give, helps provide advocate, seven meals volunteer, for those around live United, quietly go struggling to live with hunger. Brought to you by Together we're feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Wow. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. My name is Ruth Rusi, and this is how I live united. I read to children as part of United Way's education program. It helps them create links between language and literacy and prepares them for a better academic future. I figure I have the time and they have the need. My name is Ruth Rusi. I help kids prepare to succeed in school. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. 
Monday evening quarterback. It's when we hand out some letter grades to a recent performance that we've seen. We could have a very intelligent discussion about it, but I think it'd be a lot more fun just to give it some reductive, quick takes. And um, the show that Oliver and I got to see together last week was the Metropolitan Opera Live in HD broadcast. Uh, we were at the theater on Western and Diversity, I think, right? City North 14. Yeah. Legal. Yeah. Now... <laughs> I'm going to apologize to our listeners. The Met Opera is now celebrating its 10th year of doing these live broadcasts, whereby uh, it is a full performance from the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Uh, Multiple cameras are in the house. You are in the movie theater, and uh, what you are seeing is the live production as it's going down. What happens in intermission? So you ask, uh, there are interviews, there are behind-the-scenes shots. It's really kind of an incredible experience. I can't believe it took me 10 years. They show you the stagehands changing the set? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's I mean, it's, it's kind of magical in a way. Uh, and if you have not been to an HD broadcast, uh, I cannot recommend highly enough, at least you go for yourself and check it out. The bottom line is this, is that and this is such a big thing for us on our show, uh, trying to get people to go to opera and talk about opera with the fanaticism and the pervasiveness of sports. Uh, Good time to remind you guys about our phone number in the studio as well, actually. 847-866-WNUR. If you want to give us a call, let us know what you're thinking. Also, Twitter, at Opera Box Score, uh, is that the Met Opera broadcast really is the best way for us to have a national conversation about opera. Oliver, tell us about your opinions and uh, give us some grades on the show. Well, before I do, uh, I have to say a couple things. One, um, that I, if you look up Neil Armfield, the, the stage director of the Magic Flute, his Wikipedia entry uh, says that his homosexuality has informed much of his work. So maybe we're going to get the gay Magic Flute, the skin flute or something like that. So that makes me more <laughs> excited about it. Um, also, uh, Nadine Sierra um, was the Gilda of the Met broadcast um, of Rigoletto very recently, I think like four weeks ago, and she was outstanding. So it makes sense to me that a veteran like Leo Nucci, uh, who you know has had a really long career singing this role even, and then the ingenue Nadine Sierra would get that type of ovation. But the Pearl Fishers, um, you know, we talked about this two weeks ago. And uh, I was really excited to hear to to see it. I read the reviews before I actually saw it, and it seemed very promising. It was mostly positive, and I have to say that um, the production itself is beautiful. Uh, it was very cleverly put together. Um, it only really has two uh, set pieces, uh, scenery uh, scenes, set designs, mm-hmm. uh, but they uh, added a lot of extra interest with uh, projections. And the projections were used so tastefully. They weren't distracting, and they didn't necessarily need to be in the show for the show to work. But they added lots of uh, visual interest, and uh, they really gave the flavor of what the environment was supposed to be. But the set itself was so detailed. I'm giving the set an A uh, because, you know, they knew that this was going to be an HD broadcast. And when the cameras were up close, uh, you could definitely see, like, the craft work of the set designers, uh, like this distressed wood and like this really, you know, chipping paint and, you know, everything looked like it had been, been wet at some point. Did and they I pull off the whole underwater feel that they were really trying to... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, 
So yeah, I agree with you. I'm going to give the the scenic design and the use of projections an A as well. I usually I'm allergic to projections, and that's really not my bag aesthetically. Mm. And and yes, you know when when it's a Met HD broadcast, the scenic designers and the the scene shop they know that they really have got to have that attention to detail the way that you would have in a movie because you are essentially watching a movie. Uh, and they really got it right on this one. Total A. So uh, another top grade goes to Matthew Polanzani, uh, who. Disclaimer, I used to work with him at the Verdi Puccini Opera Cafe, and I do not have a crush on him, but he did look awesome with all those tattoos on his arms. He looked like kind yeah, of dangerous. Those are dope. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was a sleeve. I thought it, for a minute it was like... Yeah. But he sang so elegantly, and this music requires a true stylist. You know, singers who have been successful in this role have been uh, like Leopold Simono or Nikolai Geda or Alfredo Krauss, you know, who are super high lyric tenors who know how to really finesse this music. And uh, it's rare that you find a tenor these days who can do that. And Polanzani has such a fantastic technique, and he sang with so much grace, and uh, it was really thrilling. Uh, I think Marius Kvichin also uh, gets good good grade. I would give him a B for his performance. I love this guy. I think he's such a great actor. He's so natural on stage. Uh, not the easiest thing for him. I mean, he does sing these cavalier baritone roles like Eugene Onegin. Uh, mm-hmm. But this one seems to be a little bit challenging for him uh, in his aria, the um, O Nadir in the third act. He had a little bit of a moment where he was trying to go for a lot of you know, suave, nuanced, off the voice, you know, soft singing. And he sort of fell off in one moment. Mm. And um, I applaud him for trying to do those things because I do like the variety uh, in tone quality, especially in a long baritone role like this. I felt like he was much more kind of just, I don't want to say generic, but just like basic in the first act. But it was good because it it definitely made Nadir uh, the focus of the first act and it made uh, Layla, the focus of the second act, and finally yeah. drew the attention to himself in the third act. And he really paced it beautifully. Deanna Damrau, um, I'm going to probably make enemies here, but I'm going to give her like a B minus, like C plus. She has such a fantastic technique that she makes too many choices. I feel like she's fussy and she didn't ever really just sing with simplicity and sing with line. She did so much and she had, you know, uh, balls to the wall singing in some cases, especially in the duet with uh, with uh, Zurga. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just felt like it wasn't simple. And there's just sometimes you just gotta sing, girl. Just let it, just sing it. You know, it's really true. I mean, she's obviously done that broadcasts before, and and maybe no one told her she hasn't quite figured out that like. It does not have to be big. I mean, look, uh, this is the pity when you're live in the theater in the opera house for a Met broadcast. is like everything is smaller because they're acting for the camera, you know, and it, this is the price that we pay. And, you know, she clearly had not quite gotten that note because it was very, there was a lot of movement. I would hate to be the camera guy trying to follow her. Yeah, it was, it was I mean, like, I, I understand if you're in the hall and you see that it might read as like, oh, this is a person that is disheveled or disoriented or, you know, is confused. And she did lots of like jerky movements that kind of uh, suggested that. But uh, on camera, it definitely felt like too much. Uh, and then I'm going to give a C to the conductor, Gian Andrea Nozeda. I haven't oh, that's really, harsh, man. I know, I haven't really paid wow. much attention to his, I know that I've heard him before, but when I'm distracted by the conducting, I rarely pay attention to the conducting. When I'm distracted by it, then I'm, I'm going to be disappointed How usually. How often is the conductor even in the shot? Uh, quite often, I mean, for the overture or whatever, oh, the okay. prelude, whatnot. but my criticism is that, well, here's my problem. I've listened to these really old recordings of this opera, um, 
and I'm used to hearing so much vibrato. I'm used to having languid tempos and for it just to be very like lyrical. And he kept it really tight. Like he definitely kept the show marching along and didn't indulge in any of the famous moments. And even the duet, which everybody wants to hear, he just kind of plowed through it. There's this violin solo where Layla enters. And it sounds like the meditation from Thais, you know, that type of violin line. And it was played so, so straight and it just charged along. And I really wanted a little bit more expansion, expansiveness Mm -hmm. in some of those moments because it is like a, you know, you know, late 19th century opera. Like I want to feel that, you know, uh, that uh, mid-19th century opera. Well, I I was going to say, outside of the production itself, I've got to talk about the experience a little bit, being a first-timer. I will say, I thought the sound quality was going to be better. I mean, clearly, you know, when you go see a movie in a theater, the sound is so much about how you experience that film, regardless of what the film is. And so I felt, you know, Oliver and I, we were sort of sitting, what, halfway back, right-hand side, perfectly fine seats. The sound felt like it was all coming from the front. And I... I'm not quite sure if that was a choice or if that was a technical limitation. I feel like they would have figured out by now just to have better sound quality that really... I think if you go to a different theater besides when we were at, where they put them like in the IMAX, they yeah. put them like where they really pay attention. They have this DTS. I don't know what these things mean. You sure, know? sure. Um, where they could have enhanced the sound in the space, you know, but it did feel kind of flat. And we were right next door to like The Force Awakens or something like that. So we were like <laughs> listening to like droid beeps and like, you know... Death stars exploding and stuff, you know. I still haven't seen Force Awakens, and I, it's it's not going to happen, I don't think, for some oh, time. Too bad, so, George. yeah. Uh, look, um, really appreciate the rundown, Oliver, on that, and uh, and for holding your hand, and for holding and my for hand, and tissues, for not yeah. trying to make out with me, so yeah. I can really just pay attention to the and show. for the popcorn surprise. The what? The popcorn surprise? Ew. You didn't. You didn't buy. You didn't. Bu- you didn't, bu- you didn't buy me any concessions. Me. You you cheater. Pop quiz. You could even find oh pop quiz. Wow. Coming up next. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George, Oliver, and Giovanna. Pop quiz. Oh boy. And we are back on Opera Box, where 847-866-WNUR is the number to reach us here in the studio. You can also leave us a message if you're the shy type. It's 224-218-9269. We want you talking about opera. We want you joining the conversation with us. That is one of the biggest parts of our show. In the meantime, we are moving on to Pop Quiz, and the lovely Giovanna Jacques, who is our host, is going to help take us through it okay the pop quiz this week is on the ring cycle in honor of the lyric commencing it and starting with dust wrangled are you guys ready mm-hmm. yes okay do you have your kazoos okay number one how many operas make up wagner's ring cycle a no you guys have to wait until i give you the options didn't we go over this like two weeks ago sorry yes gosh we're so smart men (laughs) a three b two c four yes oliver it's (laughs) that was actually george oh was it oh my gosh yeah Thank I can't you. see now that you've moved me to the back microphone. I, I know. I, we're trying to get you farther and farther away from, <laughs> from I'm the... I'm literally just looking at a wall From now. the coffee machine Thanks. that's in the studio. Uh, no, it's it's four. 
Yes, good. Well, that was a really hard question. Okay, yeah. well, you told me <laughs> yeah. that you didn't know anything. No, or but that you I didn't mean, like, okay, yeah. well, whatever. No, 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 it's good for the audience. It's a good warm up a little bit, you know. Well, now I feel yeah. really self conscious that all <laughs> of them are too easy. <laughs> no, so no, 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 Okay, number two, please wait for the responses. All oh, right. Originally, Wagner wanted to compose only one opera called Blank in English, as in that's the title in English, but the story got too complex, so he kept adding to it. Is it A, Siegfried? B, the death of Siegfried. C, Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> yes, George. It's uh, Siegfried. Good job. Yeah. I'm proud of you. Thanks for letting me have that one, Oliver. Mm. You were you were chuckling yes. over there, and you yes. made space. I wanted to hear your uh, Star Wars theme, since I've got Star Wars in your head. <laughs> I'll so. try and mix it you're up. You're John Williams. So. Okay. Number three. What is the name of the opera house Wagner specially created for the ring cycle to be performed? A. The Beirut Festspielhaus. B. The Beirut and Festenspielenhaus. C. The Festenspielhaus das Beirut. And and D. D yes, Oliver. <laughs> the Bayreuth Festspielhaus. Yes. What was your what was what's D, George? D, D is none of the above, seeing as that that you said Beirut and not Bayreuth. <laughs> Bayreuth. It's okay. We're we're gonna send it's okay, you. Okay, she's French. Let's. So. Yeah. yeah. You remember that time you were trying to compose? <laughs> I know. Na- same You're the one that oh, said Nadina. It's Nadine. I I, I know. I that was see that was my yeah, German influence not, coming George. in there. That's not. It is true, Giovanna. When it comes to French, oh my God, you, you could talk French to me all day. And well, you said Robert Lapage earlier, and I was like, ooh. Did that make you? Yeah, I was like. Exactly, a little movement exactly. down there. So. But no. the rest of your language, Giovanna, you know, need need work. Wow. <laughs> you mean the rest of my languages is in English and French? You definitely need work on your English. Yeah, I know that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I really, I do feel embarrassed about that. Okay, question four. How many Rhine maidens are in Das Rheingold? A, enough for a threesome, as in three. <laughs> B, too many to handle, as in 25. C, four, the same number of operas in the ring cycle. <laughs> George technically beat you <laughs> it, to it. Yeah. It's oh wait, it is me, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, too many to handle, as in twenty-five. No, I said it's me. me oh, meaning yes. it's it's a three. Yes, yeah. you're right. Exactly. Okay, number what? five. Oh, Rhine maidens. Oh, I thought you were talking about Valk- Valkyries. I'm oh, so glad you. Yeah, that would have been tricky. Yeah, because yeah. I think there's like twelve of them or something like that. Yeah, there's a nine? ton of them. Yeah, yeah. they're very. Catholic, and they all have names. You know? Yeah. In creating this cycle, Wagner became known for a special musical theme that indicated a certain character or character trait. These are called A. Leitmotifs, B. Lederhosen, C. Gotardamero. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Oliver. <laughs> um, those are called light motifs. Good job. I know. George wins. Thanks. Way to go. Well, it was it was a close one. Yeah, Actually. it was very exciting at the end there. Uh, so, you know, yeah. all this um, Star Wars talk is is not without context. My son is now obsessed with oh Star gosh. Wars, having not do I even have a quiz question. S- you do. He, he hasn't even seen Star Wars, by the way. He doesn't get to see it until he's eight. That's Why? just that's the rule. What's why? May I ask? Well, may it's a little may I question violence. Your parents. It's a little. It's a little, it's a little violent. Oh. Can you can you watch the Lego Movie? Uh, don't don't get me started on okay. the Lego. He's obsessed with <laughs> all things Lego and uh, Star Wars right now. I, I can't talk about it anymore, other than to ask you what is his favorite Star Wars character. This is from a boy who's never seen the movie. Everything he knows about Star Wars, he's picked it from his kindergarten class. But who's his favorite character? I'm going to say Darth Vader. Wait, it's my question. Oh. Um, well, where's your kazoo? 
I don't have a kazoo because <laughs> this is his his son has a vendetta against me for letting Toby <laughs> cheat one time months ago because I felt bad and took pity on Toby's intelligence. Mm, we know the real reason. Um <laughs> No. Um it is either Luke Skywalker or Han Solo. Okay, well, well, it's Han Solo. <laughs> a, you don't get to hedge your bets by saying like I, it's one of these two, and and B, both of those are wrong. It, it actually is Darth Vader. What? Oh, I don't yeah. even know your son, but I I feel him. I yeah. Feel him. Yeah. Did you feel Why? his force? <laughs> oh my gosh. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Anyway, we're gonna take a short break here. Uh, by the way, speaking of Tobias Wright, um, does anybody follow him on Facebook? Somebody yeah. congratulated him no, on his... No, it's a joke. It's an old prank. Oh, okay. Yeah. Had he done something... No, no somebody congratulated him on being engaged. Remember he like, told <gasps> us about that, George? How, so like, he just so met her. Friends. This Florida girl. Oh, yeah. And that was just a joke? Florida yeah. girl, step off. Oh, my gosh. I am so gullible. <laughs> 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 so, so gullible. Let's take a short break right here. Stick around on WNUR 89.3 FM and Opera Box Score. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Well, I finally did it. I opened a 401k. What? Why? Just wait for the inheritance. We've definitely got a rich uncle somewhere. We're one call away from the winner's circle at the Derby, dinners with multiple forks, a vacation home in the country, using summer as a verb. You don't actually think that, do you? When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Okay, Sarah, I'm dropping you at Emily's, and Josh, you're going to soccer, right? Yeah. Yep. Oh, and by the way, when I pick you up, I'll be wearing my short shorts. What? No! Yep, me and my short shorts doing my daddy dance. Your friends will love it. No! Well, I might change my mind if you buckle your seatbelts. Okay, okay, we're buckling up. See, all buckled. Whatever it takes, keep them safe. Never give up until they buckle up. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Visit safercar.gov slash kidsbuckleup for more information. Listen, as a hiring manager, I've got to tell you, the best job candidate isn't always the typical candidate. Sometimes they're a grad of life. Meet the grads of life. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Sometimes the best candidates aren't the ones you're used to. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. We're also streaming live at WNUR.org slash pop up. On Twitter, at Opera Box Score. Chalk Talk Part 2 and Oliver Camacho, over to you. Well, I want to talk about uh, this article that uh, I saw being circulated on Facebook. Uh, it's from the Harvard Political Review, and I'm, I'm almost loath to continue to share it here because uh, this article really got my panties in a bunch, and we talked about it uh, on the other opera podcast, Opera Now. 
And I didn't really get a chance to put my two cents in on it because it angered the producer and host of Opera Now so much that he kind of cut off the conversation. But it's an article in Harvard Political Review by an author named uh, Daniel Kenny. And feel free to take Michael Rice's advice and uh, cyberbully this guy because uh, he really wrote something that's pretty heinous. Uh, he talks about... Uh, opera suffering from elitism. Is that how you say that word? Elitism? Elitism, elitism, elitism I would Elis- say. Elitism is a term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he sort of cites, uh, he, I mean, he makes a case, but he sort of uh, conflates a bunch of things that don't really uh, support his argument. But uh, in doing so, uh, he does bring up a couple of points that I do want to bring up. One is this uh, blackface in opera and how there is, you know, still controversy about whether or not we should be performing operas like Otello or Aida uh, with characters with, you know, ostensibly not black singers uh, donning blackface makeup. And uh, he sort of starts off his article talking about this as a way to talk about how opera is so behind that this is even an issue, uh, you know, in modern day theater that it's done nowhere else but in opera. Also, uh, he's 12. <laughs> I just looked up a picture of him, and he's like a tiny yeah, little... Yeah, I mean, the Harvard Political Review is an undergraduate publication at Harvard, so he's he's an undergrad at, at Harvard, just to put this into context. Oh, okay. It doesn't excuse, like, what what, what he's writing here, but I think it uh, he makes some huge sweeping generalizations in this article. You can read the link you, from our um, Facebook account, uh, but that's just a bit of context. Keep going, yeah. everybody. He also talks about how... Um, you know, op- opera goers are uh, attracted to the status uh, that it bestows them as opposed to maybe attracted to the content. And he thinks that opera needs to adapt by, um, you know, to, attra- to attract new fans has to adapt by changing its content. Uh, he says that opera encourages what he calls irrealism or not realism. Uh, and that, you know, it, it allows its uh, audience to be, you know, uh, kind of complacent and uh, to not be really engaged um, in a way that we're engaged. Supposedly, we're watching a movie or we're watching a straight play. Exactly. Uh, well, there's, there's, there's two things yeah. there. First Everybody of all, this idea of a realism is that he stole that idea from the writer Will Self, who Will Self is known for being completely um, self-centered and self-obsessed anyway. But this idea of realism, irrealism, it's like, yes, there are people singing so yes, it is a real, and hello, that is the magic of it. That is why we go. That is not why it's useless, or that is not why it's bizarre or strange. Like, that is the beauty of the art form. Well, and George, I think what's funny is the entire time I was reading this article, I was thinking, man, like, has this kid been to the opera? And then I, I scrolled down to see, <laughs> to see the comments, and the last comment <laughs> was from George Cenerquist, <laughs> and it was, Dude, what was the last opera you saw and where? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, well said, George. That's exactly how I and, feel. And that ties into this idea of this sort of like the social elites are the ones going to opera. I guarantee you, you go to any opera house any night of the week from the little storefronts to the biggies like San Francisco, Houston, Chicago, the Met. Like, it, it's nothing to do with uh, there will be people up in the cheap seats and sneakers i guarantee you because i'm one of those people uh so this this you argument really of elitism like it just doesn't it just it, it bears no water also he should at least post a picture of the met if he's going to talk about the met and not some random opera house in europe 
And to to dovetail into what you were saying before, um, opera is about artifice. It just is. But once you accept the artifice and what it's doing, then you can, you know, enjoy what the composer, what the librettes are trying to do. I mean, there are so many things that we watch that are artificial, like Lord of the Rings, you know, but that doesn't mean that you can't relate to situations that characters find themselves in just because you've never, whatever, had to uh, return a ring and burn it in a mountain or whatever is supposed to happen, you know? Like, we we love artifice, you know? But I think that because it's such an old version of artifice that certain people reject it, that they'll never understand it. And there were things, admittedly, that he points up uh, in the past that might have uh, caused people to shy away from opera, such as there didn't used to be subtitles or supertitles. And so you had to read the libretto, you know, ahead of time or buy a libretto from the lobby and try to follow along, which wasn't very user friendly. But, you know, I think it was a matter also of uh, the technical, uh, you know, whatever the, the, the state, the the actual supertitles wasn't something that was invented until later on and to be able to project those things. And now the Met has a very sophisticated supertitle system, you know. But, um, yeah, that was expensive. And uh, we often were importing international artists and we would bring in Italian singers to sing Italian opera. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was sort of the joy of it. It's like, you know, getting to hear opera in its, its original language as opposed to in the translation. Um, we also, uh, you know, built very expensive and extravagant opera houses uh, so that opera could feel like a special occasion. And then people would show up dressed like in their beautiful, you know, evening wear, gowns, tuxedos, furs, you know. And that was part of the joy of going to the opera is that you it was like a social occasion. But that doesn't mean that when they were composed, that the composers wanted it to be such an event. I mean, like an opera like The Magic Flute, which you love so much, was written <laughs> yeah. with the people in mind, you know. And while being a grand opera and having the sort of this German, like, you know, folklore mixed with, you know, moralist plays or whatever you want to call those things, there was... Uh, fun for the audience, like characters like Papageno, you know, were designed to entertain the audience while the heroic characters like Tamino and Pamina were, you know, giving us the sample, the flavor of, you know, grand opera seria. So uh, that's not just uh, my point being that like just because what we think of opera back in the turn of the century, yes, it was an occasion and people got dressed up and it felt expensive and not. That doesn't mean that that was his intention to be performed that way. You know? Well, and uh, look, I mean, the art form has changed. You know, these, these criticisms of opera are so hackneyed and are so tired. And the fact of the matter is, is that uh, artistic administrators in opera are not idiots. Like, the writing is on the wall. They've seen the writing. They've read the writing. And they've made changes. They're constantly changing the way that, that opera is being, I'm going to say, produced. So that um, what I'm talking about is not just what's happening on stage, but, like, the entire experience of it. And they honestly, basically what opera producers, opera companies have said to this you want to show up in, like, a beautiful ball gown or you want to show up in black tie, go for it. Knock yourself out. Have a great night. And you want to show up, like, in your hoodie and, and tennis shoes, that's cool. You will be welcome. That is okay. You know, this is one way that they've really tried to change the perception of the art form. So uh, an article that is sort of, like, adjacent to this one that came out a little bit earlier uh, has to do with... Um, 
Casper Holton, the Royal Opera House uh, director, and he addresses this, even though it, this article was written before, but he talks about how he is, uh, when he hears that people are, uh, that, th that think that opera is elite, he asks, you know, have you actually ever seen you know, an opera? Have you been? Because you have, then you'll know that opera is actually very timely. The subject matter is timely, even though it's timeless. And it does try to be subversive. And it's, uh, you know, great operas, you know, are great art. And all great art, you know, questions power. And uh, I think that, you know, you take an opera like... Uh, Let me just read that entire quote, actually, okay. because what Casper Holton who says here about opera is, is so succinct and concise. He says, it's ridiculous when people say operas are elitist. Most operas are actually quite subversive. They question power. They question money. They've always traditionally been speaking up for the men, and here he means people, at the bottom. And actually, he goes on to say, opera is more accessible than football if you look at the ticket prices. Opera box score. It's, opera hey, class. I mean, that is, that is like our epitaph right yeah. there. Do you know what I mean? But it's, yeah. it's so true that like uh, opera totally can be a subversive art form. Absolutely. Well, I heard an interview with uh, a, a young singer named Giovanna John recently on another <laughs> oh uh, opera-related podcast called Doing the Work. And uh, you were sort of going on about, you know, how you want to find a way to make this art form more uh, accessible through different, you know, type of, you know, ground, uh, what do you call this, like, uh, gr uh, like uh, companies like Chicago Fringe Opera, which yeah. you work for, you know, <clears throat> that try to do, what am I looking for, ground work? I'm talking about looking for grassroots, yeah. you know, more of like grassroots approach yeah. to presenting opera. Well, I mean, I'm not the first, and I certainly won't be the last, and I'm not alone. I mean, there are many of us that really want to try and change it and, and break down that fourth wall and try and bring opera closer to the people. This, this, uh, the only thing that, um, uh, what's this, what's this guy? The Daniel kid, Kenny. Daniel Kenny might have, have some, you know, correctness in is that we are all involved in the arts, but I can guarantee you that all my friends or family that don't have an involvement in the art definitely still think that opera is a highbrow uh, medium. And that's, that's, a, that's a pretty general consensus, I'd say, outside of anyone who has any kind of interest. So in that sense, I think that, you know, the grassroots opera and they're really trying to reach those particular people and show a different face of opera is important to, to change minds. We have to combat that feeling, but I also think we should not dumb down what we're doing, and we shouldn't apologize for it. I don't think anyone is apologizing if they're doing grassroots or if they're doing any kind of smaller productions. The operas are different. They're written for a different audience. They're written for a different ensemble. I don't think it's apologetic, and I don't think it's a bad idea. The, on, the only operas ever written are not the lyric season or the Met season. There are so many operas out there that Met, Lyric, uh, London won't put on because, you know, they're chamber operas or they're too small. There's there's more to it than what Kenny Daniel Like at the Prototype Kenny Festival. Right, um, exactly. And, and what Casper Holton goes on to say in this article addresses this point about challenging audiences. He says, audiences are critically important to us as an art form, but taking audiences seriously also means putting the new in front of them and challenging them. It means expecting them to come as grown-ups with curiosity and openness. And I think one of the failings of opera companies in this country is that they are playing down to their audiences for the most part. These are not the big companies, the mid-range companies. They don't think that their audiences are ready or interested enough in something new and different, a new interpretation of an old classic. And they're doing their audiences a disservice because most of those people are 
intelligent, well-read, want to be challenged. Maybe they are live in a college town. You know, I'm sure they have terminal degrees, and so they are totally ready to be challenged by unusual art on the stage just in the way that they look at modern dance and they look at contemporary visual art. Look for this article on The Telegraph. Uh, if, you, if, you look, if you search for Casper Holt, and the article is written by uh, Hannah Furness. Um, but at any rate, I just want to finish, wrap this up by saying yeah. that uh, we are in a time right now of amazing television. And I, I'm, I'm going to bring this together. I promise it's going to come together. I just watched <laughs> Mr. Robot. And I binged right, on yeah, it, yeah. and it's so complicated, and I did not know what the heck I was watching, and I had to like read synopses of each episode so I could follow along. But I did the work, and it made it made the show that much more enjoyable. Let us assume that people, if they are exposed to something as great as the Magic Flute or Eugene Onegin or La Traviata, that there is a little bit of work you need to do. But if you do, it will you know pay its reward and you know tenfold. I must be a lot more cynical in people's ability to not be lazy than you are Oliver mm. <laughs> yeah well let's I know that the, um, the this is a perennial topic we'll probably come back to it we, prob we probably we yeah. probably will but I mean we're gonna have to come back to it until these sorts of stereotypes go away until we can prevent people behaving badly and writing moronic articles in the Harvard Political Review this is also the only arts related article that he has ever written <laughs> I would just like well, to point on that him. out. So, and again, I, I mean, I'm not here to attack this, this kid. Oh, I am. That's not no, my let's, job. I am. Let's, let's leave, all take him outside I'll leave, and punch I'll him. I'll leave that to you two people. But, uh, you know, we're going to be attacking this content again and again. So, uh, Oliver, appreciate the setup and the talk through on that. We are going to wrap this up in one minute on WNUR 89.3 FM, Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right. Well, we have got just a few minutes left here on our show. It's time for Good Call, Bad Call, where we pick something really good or really bad that's happened to us, probably in the opera world, possibly not, and uh, give you kind of our parting gift for having spent an hour with us of your time. Uh, let's see here. Let's have... I don't want to go first. Oliver, go first. All right. Well, my bad call is not really fair to the person who created the bad call but jamie barton uh was ill for the hd for the um radio broadcast of anna bolena last saturday and i was super disappointed because she sings that role like she really is amazing in that role and she's a perfect foil to sandra Rodanoff Rodbanovsky. uh replacing her was her cover miliana nikolic and um that's i'll leave that there um my good call was that I saw Bel Canto, and I have to applaud Lyric Opera for trying to create a work uh, that really uh, resembles the face of opera as it should be now uh, with a uh, Latino um, production crew. I mean, the, the librettist and the composer were, were both Latino, to my understanding. Uh, on stage, we had an African-American lead and Janai Bridges. A lot of Asians, one Japanese, uh, Takaoki Onishi, an Asian-American, Andrew Stenson, a Korean, Jun Chol Cha. Uh, and of course, we had our Sri Lankan, uh, American, Australian diva, Danielle Denise. And countertenors. I think countertenors are part of the minorities. So Anthony Roth Costanza, who I think stole the show. Uh, bravo to Lyric Offer for assembling that type of cast. Giovanna, what do you got? Um, Oliver, at the risk of being corny, 
I'm going to have my good call be um, that today is Martin Luther King Day. And I thought it would be nice to share one of my favorite quotes of his, which is, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. So I hope that everyone is able to take a moment today and remember to fight for peace in a way that uses peace. My good call is going to be the Republican and Democratic debates. I get obsessed by the election every four years, and I cannot stop watching the debates. The reason why I can watch them is because I think that they're a scripted television show. I don't believe that these are this is what people are actually saying, especially the Republican debate. I think it's all scripted and written out, and they've just created these characters like Ben Carson and Donald Trump just to say crazy things to jack up their ratings. That's it for tonight's show. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our programming director is Bill Cholmay, and the general manager for WNUR is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. Let us know what you think of the show. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. Operaboxscore on Twitter. Operaboxscore on Facebook. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and our next podcast is going to be posted on monday january 25 don't just listen to it leave comments reviews and stars we're back live in studio on monday february 1st at 9 p.m central i'm george cedarquist asking you to keep the conversation about opera going but wrap up warm first you're listening to wnur fm evanston chicago chicago's sound experiment javana final thought i'm just thinking about how much i don't want to go back outside in the cold